0: Please turn in your Bibles for the 12th chapter of Second Chronicles. Our study tonight will be the entire chapter. Let me remind you now, I suppose, that communion will be served uh, as we did before with the sanitary procedures. We'll get a bag with the bread in it. It's best to shake it out. And do it as soon as you get it so we can eat together and the cups will be peelable, the elders will be very sanitary, and I hope that you'll feel perfectly comfortable to partake as you're invited to the Lord's table. Well, Let us now turn our hearts and minds to God's living word. This is God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, the 12th chapter of Second Chronicles. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were, who were, were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukim, Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, thus says the Lord, you abandon me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries." So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard came and carried them and brought them back to the guard room. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make complete destruction. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. So King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now the acts of Rehoboam from first to last, are they not written in the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and of Iddo the seer? There were continual wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah his son reigned in his place. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we now pray your blessing on our study of your word. Give us wisdom unto salvation. Help us to humble ourselves before your wonderful mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus frequently taught about the danger of becoming complacent because of worldly blessings. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus advised us not to lay up treasures on earth. They can be so easily lost, he went on to say, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where they can never be lost, Matthew 6, 19 to 20. And Jesus also taught a parable about a rich man who was so happy with his plentiful grain and his vast goods that he just kept building bigger and bigger barns and storage facilities. He said to himself, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry luke twelve sixteen to nineteen Now in the process, he forgot about God, and so God came to him and said, "Fool, this night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be luke twelve twenty Well, Jesus gave the punchline, "So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God." Luke twelve twenty one the danger of complacency towards God because of worldly and earthly things. Well, Judas, King Rehoboam, the first in the long line of kings who would follow David and his son Solomon, was very much like the rich fool of Jesus' parable. He started off terribly, you remember. In his pride, he alienated the better part of the nation and he lost the ten northern tribes. Henceforth, that nation would be known as Israel. But the previous chapter we studied, chapter 11, shows that he listened to the Lord when God spoke to him and commanded him to cease fire in his war plans against the northern kingdom. And as a result of listening to the Lord, Rehoboam settled into a prosperous security. And then God blessed Rehoboam with the arrival of many godly priests from the northern kingdom. They they realized that God's purpose was with the southern kingdom and the house of David. With them came a godly and pious people from all the tribes. And this blessed the southern realm. And the chronicler points out that they this is first second chronicles eleven, seventeen. That they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure, for they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Now that's a very encouraging statement, except for the part about three years. That's the problem. That is the ominous part of that statement from the previous chapter. Now our chapter tonight tells us what happened after the three years when Rehoboam no longer walked in the faith of his fathers. It it tells a story about God's discipline, which is always joined to mercy. It, It tells of God's training of his people in the painful service of sin. And it concludes at the end of Rehoboam's life with the ambiguity of a man who could not decide if he wanted to follow the Lord. Well, many people hear the gospel and even attend church, but they're much like Rehoboam. Second Chronicles 12 tells them not to be spiritually complacent, especially if they have earthly blessings. And then it says that when they are spiritually complacent, not interested in God, they should not be surprised at the humbling school of hard knocks with which God so often responds. And most hopefully, this chapter displays in the midst of all that the mercy of God, which is there for us to find If only we will seek it. Well, first, let's look at Rehoboam. He listened to God's word when the Lord sent his prophet to command an end to his striving with the northern tribes. The result, verse 1, was he was established and he was strong. Now, we remember, however, that back in that whole episode when the, remember the, uh, solomon had died rehoboam had become king he went to meet at shechem with the ten with all the tribes and they wanted to know what kind of king he planned to be and remember when that happened he didn't seek the lord he didn't consider god's word he didn't find a prophet He didn't look at the law of moses that was available to him he didn't pray but he does seem to have obeyed god when god then came afterwards and told him not to attack although we get the impression that it was he was the follower and not the leader second chronicles 11:4 makes it clear that the people weren't going to follow him So the impression is that he followed them. That was the form of his obedience. Now, likewise, those three years of godliness in which Rehoboam at least outwardly followed the way of the Lord seems to have had more to do with the godly people who came to Judah from the north than it did with Rehoboam. You see, a man or woman who lives according to God's word primarily for the sake of others is likely to depart at some point. It's a real warning to our children. You're growing up in Christian homes. Your parents, of course, expect you to go to church, to not to engage in gross sin, to, to do the things that Christian will do. Of course, you're rewarded for doing them. Good parents will do that, and you're praised. But see, it's essential that you do so because your own heart is seeking the Lord. That it's an expression of your own faith, your own piety, and time will always tell. Well, for Rehoboam, It was when he felt secure that he no longer thought that he needed to worry about God. He didn't need to seek God's blessing. It was then that his lifestyle followed the trajectory of his ungodly heart. Now, we all should be on guard in times of plenty and security that we do not forget the Lord. I think if you've been a Christian for very long, you have seen in your own experience that tendency. This is part of our sin nature. When things are going well, we forget to pray. Suddenly, the things of the Lord become secondary. This is a tendency of all sinners, and that's all of us. At some point, we have experienced a decline in spiritual fervor because it seemed less tangible than it did before. We didn't seem to need the Lord. Now, in Rehoboam's case, it seems that what really brought this to him was the sense of military security that resulted from all of those forts, those fortified cities that he had built towards the south. It made him feel that he was secure enough not to have to worry about his religious duties, much less the moral obligations set forth in the law of Moses. Well, the chronicler simply says that when he was established and strong, verse 1, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Now, he may not have been the leader when it came to obeying the Lord, but he certainly was when it came to disobedience, because it was he now who affects the nation. All Israel went with him. Now, that doesn't refer to the ten northern tribes, but now Israel, the true Israel, is the southern kingdom. It has the godly of the other tribes, and Rehoboam leads them astray. A mere three years after the appearance of those godly pilgrims from the north, north, the ease and apparent security of his position tempted him into the ungodliness that is spelled out. It's not spelled out by the chronicler, but it is spelled out in First Kings 14, verse 23. And I think throughout Chronicles, he expects that we have that record. They built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and every under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. So they began practicing the idolatrous religion combined with sexual debauchery. Now, if Rehoboam's spiritual lethargy resulted from his military security, and I think that's the case, it was in this very department that the Lord would express his wrath. The writer of Kings tells us that these sins provoked the Lord to jealousy with their sins they had committed more than all that their fathers had done, 1 Kings fourteen twenty two, And so what God planned for Judah was not a final destruction. It wasn't their annihilation in his wrath. But what he did get, provide was a painful discipline designed to gain their attention. That's what we see in this chapter. Now, God's discipline involves unpleasant circumstances in the experience of his people designed to show that their sin has been noticed and disapproved. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 3 to 11 makes it very clear that this is something that happens in the lives of Christians, not just some Old Testament phenomenon. It's true now. We experience God's discipline, his fatherly discipline, with the aim that we would humble ourselves and return to his ways. Hebrews 12, 5-6, quoting Proverbs 3, says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So 2 Chronicles 12 is a heavy-handed discipline of the very kind that Christians are told will happen to us if we stray severely. Now God tends to associate his punishment with our sins. And so it often will work out this way. A Christian who makes an idol out of career glory will often find that they experience a major job disappointment. Or those who have indulged in sexual sexual sin will find that they suffer relationship trials. Well, for Rehoboam, whose sin-inducing self-confidence seemed to flow from his supposed military security, God's discipline involved an invasion from resurgent Egypt. Verses 2 and 4, in the fifth year of Rehoboam, because they'd been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. The people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyan, Sukkian, Ethiopians, and he took the fortified cities and came as far as Jerusalem. Now, secular history records this Shishak. He's also known as Shoshank I. He was a vigorous ruler who was the founder of Egypt's 22nd dynasty. And his ability to gather such a massive force, 60,000 horsemen, 1,200 chariots, including allies to the west, that would be Libya and sukium and that also allies to the south, that's Ethiopia, that entests to his strong leadership, which the Lord evidently had raised up for this very purpose and occasion. Now if we watch the old newsreels of German panzers sweeping through France in 1940, crushing all resistance, we get a, a picture, an idea of Shishank's invasion, its blitzkrieg of Israel. Now, archaeologists have discovered an account of the war in Egyptian ruins. It was actually a temple with a big slab on the side of the wall that they found under the sands. And it has the official record of this very uh, event. By the way, as we would expect, it confirms the historicity of the biblical account. It also shows that he did more than the chronicler notes. Because he attacked Israel, the northern tribes. He actually attacked Edom and overran it. It was a massive display of military strength. You see, he was aware that Solomon was gone. No longer is the king of glory there with his. Remember the great might, the empire that Solomon had. Well, that was gone. In fact, the kingdom to his north was divided. There would be little opposition. And so he knew the timing that he chose was right to overrun these fortresses Rehoboam had so painstakingly built. Well, you fast forward here, and all that is left to Rehoboam is Jerusalem itself. And we can picture him stalking its walls, and there's no one to counsel his bewildered mind. He must have had questions like, what had happened? What just happened to me? Why did it happen? And in his mercy, it was the Lord who gave the answers. His counselors did not know, but the prophet Shemaiah did know because God gave him a message. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, you have abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Now, this was actually vital information for King Rehoboam to know. You see, this was not the result of mere chance, nor was it merely a scheme hatched out of the fertile mind of the new emperor of this Egyptian quasi empire. By the way, this is, uh, we discern here what is an important part of the chronicler's theological message throughout this book. Namely, that God is sovereign and he responds either to the faith or to the faithlessness of his people. Remember, Chronicles is written in the, around the year 475. To the Jews who come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, he's teaching them theology through the history. The point is not just what happened, but what does it tell us about God? It tells us that God is watching his people. As Peter said, that judgment begins with the house of God. And when we are faithful, God responds with blessing. And when we are unfaithful, we are disciplined. That's the point being made by the chronicler. Moreover, while he is not recorded as saying so, this prophet Shemaiah is clearly also issuing a call to repentance. That humble repentance will will respond in deliverance. Andrew Stewart writes, speaking of Shemaiah the prophet, that the function of God's spokesman in every generation is to point men and women back to God. That's right. Our function today is to point People back to God. What's needed in our time is a return to God, a humility, a repentance, a turning to God in faith. The very God whom people are generally, generally trying to ignore. Now it turns out that Rehoboam's cultural accommodation, that's what this was, he didn't cook up these asherim, it's what the neighbors were doing. It was the way they were worshiping. They didn't want to be different. The church feels enormous pressure that way today. It was cultural accommodation. And this was not mere self-expression. It wasn't religious exploration. It was a betrayal of the Lord. Why? Because God is real. Because God is there. He watches the people who bear their name. He's not an angry God watching over, waiting to smack you? No, he's a God of love and grace, but he is a holy God. And he can be offended. He was offended here. He saw this as a betrayal of his covenant. Now, it's not particularly notable, you realize, when the unbelieving people violate God's law. We're never surprised at the ungodly. Don't be surprised when you look at America that an ungodly people are doing ungodly things. The problem is that they are ungodly. And the Lord, generally speaking, does not discipline in the same way when it comes to the pagans around us. For them, he is storing up wrath on the day of judgment. But for his own people to reject him for the false gods of the world, today, today that would include the intellectual gods, the doctrinal false gods of the world. Well, that is a great offense to the Lord. Go down to verse 13. The chronicler notes that Jerusalem, Rehoboam's capital, was the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Well, that is why God was angry when Jerusalem, the center of his grace, the place that had received his covenant uh, mercy when they had acted in this way. Well, the New Testament shows that this is equally true of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And so you read the letters of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. By the way, I think that those letters, the seven letters of Revelation written to our era of church history, they should weigh far more heavily on our consciences than they do. And what we find in those letters is that Jesus Christ responds severely towards the betrayals of his church. You compare verses one statement, by the way, look at verse one, Rehoboam had abandoned the law of the Lord. And then commenting on that, Shemaiah says, you have abandoned me. What we see is a correlation between God and his law that the church is not to forget. The law is God's law. And so to cast aside God's law is to cast aside God. He's angry at the violations of his law. And, And this accounts The wrath of God, to discipline his people for their idolatry and betrayal, this accounts for the calamity that Rehoboam and Judah experienced. Now, to their credit, in verse 6, at least they knew what to do. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. Now, you may have noticed it yourself this time. Yet again, it's the others who are mentioned first and Rehoboam was mentioned second. He's being led by a few subordinates who have more sense than he did. But notice as well that while we want to commend what they said, it falls far short of a full repentance. They confess their guilt humbly. They admit God's righteousness in their discipline. That's a good start. Matthew Henry notes, even kings and princes must either bend or break before God. They must either be humbled or ruined. Well, that's true for Christians as well. If we find ourselves under God's chastisement, maybe it's through ill health, maybe it's financial ruin, maybe it's relational strife, and, note the and, and we realize that we have been flagrantly violating God's law, you know, you can be sick without being disciplined by the Lord. You can suffer financial ruin without chastisement. But if these sorts of things happen to you and just a little self-examination says, you know what, I've been flagrantly violating God's law. Well, the cause of wisdom would be humble abasement before the Lord. This message of God's chastisement for sins, the sins of his people, is central to the theology of the chronicler. But so also is the mercy of God in responding to the humility and contrition of his people. Martin Selman writes, a pronouncement of judgment, such as is seen here, can be understood as a call to repent. Humbling oneself in repentance is the chronicler's recognized way back to God. Well, that's not some unique theology to the chronicler. There are nuances, a little less nuanced than you'll find in portions of the New Testament. But that's his message. It's a true message seen throughout the Bible. God chastises gross, flagrant sin, but he calls them to repent. And when they humble themselves, he shows mercy. Now, by the way, this shows the fundamental difference between God's believing people and the unbelieving world. On the one hand, God is not not that God doesn't care about the sins of the world, but he's not in covenant with them. I was given the example of being on an airplane one, some years ago. I had the aisle seat, my preferred aisle seat, and another man had the window seat and in the middle was his six or seven year old son who for two hours screamed and hit his father and spoke abusively to his father and I was very tempted, I almost broke a couple of times and said to the man, excuse me, I'm a qualified Christian father, I'd be happy to spank your child for you. But I didn't. Why didn't I not do it? Why I, could, I, I, I made it without doing it because it wasn't my business. It's not my child. You discipline your own child. And, and so one difference between the Christian and the world is that God is like me on the plane with respect to the, the rancorous world. Oh, he's their creator. He's their judge. He's storing up wrath for the end. But the other difference is that his people also know that though they are chastised, though you and we are chastised because God is holy and just, we also know that he is swift and eager to show mercy when we repent. Since until we enter glory, we are bound to sin, hopefully less than we would have, hopefully less than we used to. Christians need to know what a blessing it is that we can repent. So many blessings flow to our lives when we wake up and we repent. Micah 7.18 rejoices that he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing mercy. Do you know that? God is a holy God. He is not going to tolerate wayward idolatry from me or from you or from his church, but... He delights in showing mercy. And this mercy was revealed to Rehoboam when he humbled himself before the Lord. Look at verse 7. The Lord sends Shemaiah back. He saw they had humbled himself, so the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. The, the, the chronicler believes repetition is good teaching. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Now you go down into Egypt and the walls of the temple in Karnak, that's the temple they found, the Karnak temple, that has the big slab with the record of this event, and it makes no mention of God's sovereignty in staying Shikak's hand. But that is what happened. The Bible does mention that, and Christians learn as a result that humble repentance makes a decisive effect in heaven in shaping the course of history for Christians and the church. Well, the statement I mentioned earlier from the previous chapter that Rehoboam walked in the ways of his fathers uh, for three years, that three years part was ominous. But so in verse 7 of our chapter are the words, some deliverance. <laughs> he doesn't say, I'm going to give them deliverance. He says, I'm going to give them some some deliverance. Now evidently in reading Rehoboam's heart the Lord did not see full repentance and so he did not intend to grant full deliverance. Instead he merely kept Rehoboam from annihilation. And so verse 8 then continues his message. Nevertheless they shall be servants to him that they may know my service and the servants of the kingdoms of the countries. See, God's going to engage in a little experiential learning. They didn't want to be in service to the Lord. Now they're going to have a basis of comparison. We'll see what it's like to be in service to an idol-worshipping king like Shishak. Now, likewise, many Christians today have yet to learn why James, verse chapter one twenty-five, uh, one verse twenty-five, refers to God's law as the law of perfect liberty. Many times I've had Christians say, how is the law the law of liberty? And I often think this person has some experiential learning probably in their future you see for some it is sadly only by suffering the ravages of a chosen sinful lifestyle that they learn that true freedom is found only in keeping god's law it is only the way of freedom is the way of walking in the way of the lord we get to be what we were made to be we get to experience what we were designed to experience that's what freedom is to have the life fulfilled that we're supposed to have it happens by living according to his law it is the law of freedom well rehoboam was one of these people who didn't get that verse and so he would need some humiliation he would need training under the rule of sin in humility as his education now here's what happened by god's will shikshak came up against rehoboam's city in great strength the first main part of this chapter is that god disciplined them but showed mercy now he's going to train them because their repentance was not sufficient. It was not real. He's going to train them in humility under the rule of sin. And so Shishak moves up to Jerusalem. He's not going to let God. He's not going to let him take the city. But he's going to come up to the city. Now we're actually not told how it happened. But I think it's fairly obvious that as part of this subservience to the king of Egypt, Rehoboam would hand over his riches. And that's what happened. Look at verse 9. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. Now in particular, we are told, he also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Now remember how Solomon had so much gold and mean, silver was cheap. He had so much gold that he actually had them molded into shields. There were 200 large shields weighing 600 shekels each. There were 300 smaller shields of 300 shekels each. Such splendor as a result of God's blessing. Imagine how Rehoboam felt now that he was king. With tons, literally tons of pure gold of the highest uh, purity surrounding him as he sat in his palace in these beautiful shields. And yet, finding his security there in his wealth and his fortresses, he had forgotten the Lord, and therefore he lost the blessings the Lord had given. How many professing Christians likewise have lost their marriages and families because they forgot that the Lord demands sexual fidelity? How many pastors have lost their usefulness because in their success they forgot the need of daily prayer? Just as Job observed in the day of his sorrow, the same Lord who gives is able to take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job one twenty one. And the abandonment of God's law, therefore abandoning the Lord Himself, it would cost. It did cost Rehoboam dearly, both in liberty and in gold. Now, it's almost amusing is his response. It's telling of a heart that is not tender before the Lord. You know, the the really telling moments of our lives are not our successes, but our failures before the Lord. How do we respond when the word of the Lord calls us up, speaks to us straight, calls us to repent and amend our ways? That's what's really telling. And and these are the verses that are particularly telling about Rehoboam. Uh, the removal of Solomon's glittering shield. It, it was a vener- venerable, veritable federal reserve system of gold right there in his palace. That was clearly a call for him to seek the Lord. It had come from God. God could give it back. But lacking that kind of repentance, so ended the age, the golden age of Solomon, both literally and figuratively. Well, the king, instead of seeking the Lord, merely seeks to camouflage his disgrace. We read of this, King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, that guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Verses 10 and 11. Well, making replacements in bronze for the precious gold that he has lost, what's being said here is he didn't keep them on display anymore. He didn't want people to see them up close. Where do the shields go? Well, they're not on display anymore. The, the bronze shield, if there would be a public admission of the humiliation. No, but no, he did was on those state occasions when he would go up to the tabernacle, he would have the, the, the guards carry them. Because if you looked at them from afar, they kind of looked like gold. Bronze is shiny. It's just about the same color. And so he's, he's trying to keep up the appearances without the reality. That's what he's doing instead of repentance. Now, what a poor substitute this is for humbling himself in true repentance, turning to God in genuine trust, in sincere piety towards the Lord. He, you see, he failed to realize that the Lord had given, he'd taken away, he could give back. It wasn't hard for God to provide all this gold to Solomon. It wouldn't be hard if that was his pleasure, if the spiritual maturity of of the people warranted it for him to give it back. Instead, he went for a phony appearance. Well, the decline of Rehoboam's wealth from gold to bronze symbolized outwardly what really had been happening inwardly. It symbolized an inward spiritual decline from Solomon's heyday. Rehoboam still possessed God's city, but no longer Solomon's glory. That's what he didn't possess. The change in the currency of his shields bore a message about the consequences of sin. Barton Payne writes, His faithfulness reduced his condition to a mere imitation of the glory that once had been his. Raymond Dillard writes, the author's message to the post exilic community, what is the chronicler telling? Now living, they were under servitude to the Persian Empire, could not be missed. The path path to freedom and to the amelioration of their difficulties lay only in seeking the Lord. That's the only real way, in humbling ourselves before Him while turning from that path of humble repentance and renewed faith. Could only lead to disaster. Well, something like what we see in Rehoboam occurs in churches. And it works something like this. God pours out his spirit. There's a revival of some sort. There's a Whether it's a big public revival, it's a spiritual revival. There's a, 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 a laying hold of faith and a spiritual vigor as a result. And at first, there is the pure gold of truly sanctified hearts in a generation that honors the Lord in sincere faith and in gospel zeal. But afterwards, under the dreadful gravity of sin, later generations, they practice the outward show, but they no longer possess the inward spiritual glory and beauty. The gold declines the bronze, but you can't really see unless you get real close. Now, when Christians discover this happening in our churches, when it's happening in our families, we need to be alert. We should never be satisfied with the appearance of true spiritual power that a previous generation had. We should always pursue the reality of zeal, of holiness, of a delight in the Lord, of true and burning faith. That's what we need. The gold will decline to bronze, and when it does... We need to repent. We need to return to the Lord with fresh zeal and tender hearts. There will be times when a Christian family says, hey, we need to regroup. We're being swept away by the internet or by the latest fad or the attractions of the world. Let's start doing family worship again. Let's start praying together because this matters. Just having a Christian label and Christian artwork on the walls is not enough unless Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith, unless the power, we're always imperfect, but unless the reality of saving Christianity is in our hearts. This is so important for churches to do to turn to the Lord with fresh zeal, tender hearts, start preaching the word of God rather than pandering to the crowds, offering true biblical worship that's pleasing to him according to his word, consecrating our lives to his praise and service. In short, we must often detach our hearts from the treasures that God has so graciously given and once more count God himself and his word and the Holy Spirit Jesus, having died for our sins, now reigning in heaven, these as our true treasure. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve two masters. Matthew six twenty one. How often uh, Christ-honoring generation raises up a beautiful church building. A beautiful house of worship, but only in the next generation. The glory is in the building rather than in the gospel. If that happens, the only remedy is to turn back to God in true repentance and heartfelt faith. Beautiful church buildings are great. They're a real blessing. They just aren't a substitute for God himself and Christ and the gospel. But you see, if that doesn't happen, the next generation is going to have to sell it because there will be nobody in the pews. And once, when I ministered in Philadelphia, it was heartbreaking. We drove past church after church that in the the 19th century had been preaching palaces, massive, and they were still maintained by endowments, which are dangerous to have for that reason. And, And they were there, but they were empty until finally they got made into something really useful, an apartment building or a restaurant. You know, our missions chairman would probably like me to say that we have the opportunity in Oxford with one of our partner churches there to reverse that. A once famous building known, J.I. Packer was converted in it, known for evangelism and worship became a restaurant, but COVID-19 has knocked the restaurant out and we're raising money to make it a church again. We should, every time we walk by a church building, I saw one recently on the internet that was a cannabis distributor and it was a former evangelical church. We say, what happened? Something like Rehoboam happened. The treasures God gave, the blessings God gave, became a substitute for God. The appearance were enough without the reality. What one generation possessed in true faith, the next possessed in false faith, the next possession generation no longer possessed at all. And Jesus spoke about this in his letters to the seven, seven letters of the church of Revelation. Just read the first one. His letter to the church at Philadelphia, he said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works that you did at first. And if you do not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, we've seen two main things in this chapter Complacency caused him to turn from the Lord. The Lord responded with discipline. This is Jerusalem, the city with his name. But it was discipline accompanied with mercy. And when that was not fully sincere, he entered him into the hard training of humility under the rule of sin. Well, the chapter ends with the conclusion of Rehoboam's life. And if we're seeking for a word, I, I thought for a word to sum up what do we see in verses 12 to 16 as we conclude his life? The word I could find was ambiguous. Not the word I want associated with me as my eternal end is discussed, but it's ambiguous. There's some good things. Look at verse 12. He, when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make a complete disruption, a d- destruction. That's probably referring to the previous event when he was about to be overrun by Egypt and he humbled himself before the Lord and so Jerusalem was spared. And we read also verse 12 and 13, conditions were good in Jerusalem. The Hebrew says there were good things in Jerusalem. It's not a general assessment. It says there were yet good things in Jerusalem and so Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Uh, That's an expression of God's mercy to them. Remember Solomon, back in chapter 7, had asked the Lord, if my people who are called by my name, God said this, in fact, it was a promise God made, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, the Lord was giving a measure of this in response to the measure of their humility. He faithfully responded in mercy. That's why there were good things. What were the good things? Well, the temple. The priesthood, those godly people who had come down and were following the Lord in an increasingly decrepit generation, the sacrifices that still were daily offered in the temple, these were good things and they established his rule and strength. Now the ambiguity comes from, here's the general assessment, it's in verses 13 and 14, this is where the ambiguity is. We read that he ruled for 17 years from age 41 to 58, He ruled in the city where God's temple showed forth God's mercy. And yet, verse 14, he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Matthew Henry explains he did not serve the Lord because he did not seek the Lord. He did not pray as Solomon did for wisdom and grace. He made nothing of his religion because he did not set his heart to it. Well, here's the question, was Rehoboam saved? Well, it's ambiguous. I suppose I have to admit, somewhat against my will, that there is evidence of hope. Because verses 15 and 16, the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and Ido the seer, which we no longer possess, they say that he was buried in the city of David. Now, that's usually a statement. That gives hope for his eternal life. Not everybody's buried among the kings. In the city of David, we'll see plenty of them that are not. Well, Rehoboam is. So was he saved despite his many sins? The answer is that we cannot fully say. Dare I say that's not the answer I'm hoping for when people look back on my life. I hope it's not the answer they give at the end of your life. I have to say on balance, it seems unlikely. In the Chronicler's terminology, seeking the Lord is his description of a true and saving faith. This we read that Rehoboam did not do. Well, my friends, like Rehoboam, the years of our lives and of our service will quickly run out. Whether it's a swift end or a slow end, it will be a sure end. The day of our death will arrive with terrible surety and when it arrives the only thing that will matter is our relationship with God and his mercy. Whether we had shields of gold or shields of brawn will no longer mean anything to us when that day comes. The honors we received, the accomplishments we can claim, even the good deeds we performed, None of them will offer security either against death or, more importantly, the judgment that Hebrews 9.27 says awaits everyone after death. It is given man once to die and then comes judgment. All that will avail is mercy. The mercy of God is all that will avail in the hour of death. A mercy God has richly provided through his Son, Jesus Christ when he died as an atonement for sin. Now, Rehoboam should have realized this. He lived in Jerusalem, the word of God. A fair amount of the Bible's been written. It points forward lots of Genesis, points forward to Christ, lots of Exodus. There were priests to explain the gospel. He probably heard it preached. He saw the sacrifices every day. He's without excuse. But you and I, we live after God's son has come. He has died on the cross as an atonement for sin. His mercy has been preached to all the world or is being preached to all the world in his gospel. God has sent his own son to propitiate his wrath by dying on the cross for those who believe. You know, I think I have to say that the epitaph on Rehoboam's life really is not ambiguous. Verse 14, he did evil. For he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. God had shown his authority, his power, yes, his mercy to Rehoboam. But Solomon's son did not seek him. Well, the mercy of God is now declared unambiguously to you. In the saving message of Jesus and his cross. And Paul answered the question, how can I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to his death on the cross, his saving work as a whole, and you will be saved. Here's the question, do you believe? But there's other questions that go with it, like this. Will you repent? Will you confess? Will you repent of your sins? That's part of believing. Will you seek the Lord and the gospel as he's offered to you? Well, if you do, God's word bears a message of hope. I think Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen, which I've cited in previous sermons in this series, could almost be a theme verse. It could fully be a theme verse for the message of Second Chronicles. It gives a message of hope to you. God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Oh, seek the Lord and there will be no ambiguity. You will know that you believe. You will know that you are saved. Father, we thank you for the way these messages are recorded for us, not just the events as they happen, but the meaning in the gospel, a picture of our our own tendencies, of the way sin affects us, of the way we are foolish. And Father, we all live in, in circumstances different, but so much like those of Rehoboam. Cause us, if we need to, to wake up. And to say that these glittering treasures of earth, whether they're silicon or electronic or gold or whatever they are, they're not true treasures. You are the true treasure. Let us seek you with all our heart. Let us walk in your ways that we would enjoy that freedom that you give. Thank you that you promise that when we seek you, we will find you. Indeed, you will have found us and we will know your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.